I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Sue Paris from Grapevine, Texas. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, a presidential race flipped after bad polls, recounts, and court rulings? Say it ain't so. We're looking back at Bush v. Gore in Fiasco. Then, a young bride finds herself living in the shadow of her husband's dead wife. We'll talk about the maybe unnecessary Netflix remake of the classic Hitchcock film, Rebecca. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist and elocution coach, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified catio dweller, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, and I would like to announce I'm two weeks away from getting my cat detective certification. Oh, oh wow. Wow, we can't wait. I thought you were going to say she's two weeks pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm learning about forensics this week. Well, so well like, can I just ask you about that? Dusting for paw prints? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cat DNA. And here he is, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and welcome to the gun show arm expert, our Patreon book club host Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Whatever. Let's just get back to the, the cat detective stuff. Yeah, so two weeks away. <laughs> so, Laura, like, what else do you have to learn in this course? I've got to learn a, more about predators. Mm. Okay, I have one whole unit on predators. Um, and a then unit? I also Is there have a to, book? There, yeah, there's. it's like a whole thing. Um, and then I have to do a unit on forensics. For real so, forensics? Yeah. Um, yeah, like so you can get luminol. So say for example, Who you think you? <laughs> you think an, a cat or a dog <laughs> may have been attacked by a predator, Kevin. You go and you find tufts of hair, which is a sign of a predator attack. You can take your luminol, sprinkle it around, bring out your black light, see if there's blood. Yeah, just and like then, on CSI and shit. Yeah. And then you can take the hair and you can actually send it out for analysis. Why Animal Planet is it all over this is beyond me. I will tell you something. (laughs) You know, we like between the four of us have had many projects that have sort of been like maybe like like pitched to TV networks or like for other projects. I think this is the one. 
Laura Bricker, Pet Detective. Laura Bricker, Pet Detective. Is this going to be like the subject of your new cozy mystery series? I think it could be, yeah. Once I finish my Exeter mystery series that I'm working on, because there's so many cat, like I'm on a cat mystery right now in my town. My minister called me up yesterday because there is a black cat outside the church and we're trying to find out if it's a stray cat. So I went out dun, 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 on the scene and I identified a possible hiding spot really? for the cat. And then I, and then, yes, this there is was a spot under work? the- Oh, yeah. And then I was like, I was like, okay. And then I like walked around the corner and I was like, holy shit, there's the cat. So I was like, do, 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 because I always have cat treats in my car now in a cage. And I was like, I'm going to get that cat. But it, it seemed kind of feral. So I'm, I'm on the case to find out if it's somebody's cat. <laughs> Toby, wait, do you want to come assist? Is it, it like, wait, you. All right, never mind. <laughs> Catherine Vaughn, TV producer, if you're listening. That's right. Call Laura Bricker. It seems like it's a feral cat. It really seemed either that or, I mean, it was a cat, like, sometimes you see a cat outside and you can kind of talk to it. This cat, if you even look at it, it's like, see you later. I'm wild. So I'm, we just, it's a black cat and Halloween is coming up. So we were a little it's, worried. That's all. The whole thing just sounds like an omen to me. It does. <laughs> I think I think you need an exorcist, not a pet detective. Yes. Yes. Maybe the revs know somebody. Yeah. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get it under control. Because I think my new cat, my kitten might be possessed as well. He's like crazy. Hmm. My other cats are just like, why did you do this to us? Hmm. Well, our puppy ate a pen today. That was exciting. Is there any like animal detectivery for that? Like, will the pen come out or will he have to go to the hospital? Is there any way we can tell? That's called being a veterinarian. No, no. I had my dog unit two weeks ago, Rebecca. And mm. mostly what I learned about dogs is that you have to pretend you don't want to catch dogs huh. when there's a loose, like you have to like look the other way and not make, and then there's a thing called a snappy snare. Uh-huh. And that's what you can capture them with. Huh. So. Huh. I was thinking. If you ever find out how, how to make a dog drop that slipper, please let <laughs> okay. us know. Okay. I will report back, Kevin. Yeah, I'll get on the of, case. Uh, our, our ritual, which is to have two people. Uh, one of whom runs one way around the dining room yeah. table, and the other of whom runs the other way. Cuts him off the, the path. Table. It's literally the only way to get that goddamn slipper. All right, shall we start a podcast? Let's do it. All right. But as you're about to hear, the real story of Gore's loss in 2000 was messier, richer, and harder to arrange in a straight line of cause and effect. And none of it could have happened anywhere but Florida. In the year 2000, the networks were quick to call Florida for Al Gore before reversing and giving the state to George W. Bush, ensuring him the presidency. But the razor-thin margin triggered an automatic recount and a constitutional crisis. We were not really paying attention to Gore. We were so wrapped up in what they were saying about those numbers and... Like, it may not be over, and, like, trying to do the math a hundred different ways. Just in time for Election Day, premium podcast platform Luminary has re-released for free Fiasco Bush v. Gore. The series recounts the recount through the eyes of the civil servants, political operatives, statisticians, and legal minds who influenced the outcome. So I would say that there was an element of anger, but not violence. I mean, come on. I'm standing there in a Liz Claiborne dress. I'm not going to be 
taking anybody out. Slow Burn's original host, Leon Nafak, brings his signature style to butterfly ballads, hanging chads, and the Brooks Brothers riot. But he leaves it up to the listener to decide whether the 2000 Florida recount was a political anomaly or a blueprint for future electoral triumph or crises. Spoiler alert, although there are literally no spoilers in this story, (laughs) we are going to be talking about plot points from Fiasco. So if you want to skip ahead to our reviews to find out if you should listen, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. And spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about politics. That's right. So if that's not the Crime Writers On episode you want to listen to, we'll catch you next week. That's true. Well, I think we're going to be talking about the journalism behind this podcast. And, you know, I am trying to be as nonpartisan as possible in this discussion. I think this is a very nonpartisan conversation in terms of political conversations. It's about process, well, right? Well, it's, it's like getting wetness out of water. <laughs> but... Although there is a very funny note with Toby that I would like to start from. Are you ready, Toby? Sure. You forgot how close we came to having Joe Lieberman as our vice president? It was a near miss. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite notes you've ever given. Of course he's still alive. He was in the podcast, Laura. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like, looking back on it, he was almost freaking McCain's vice presidential. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. God, like, what what was Al Gore thinking? Anyway. <laughs> well, I, I actually want to start there because that is where the podcast starts. Now, I think Leon does kind of a smart thing, at least to me, in opening this podcast with an episode that isn't about the ballots or the recount or the Supreme Court or Catherine Harris. It's kind of about, frankly, what a shitty candidate Al Gore was and how a lot of his inability to take on a clear position on certain issues or to make a strong stand on something environmental, which is a thing he was known for doing, like all of this waffling he did made him somebody that didn't muster up enthusiasm and therefore took an election that for all reasons should have been his and made it difficult. Toby, did you find it as interesting as I did to sort of be reminded of that sort of very blasé, wishy-washiness that was the Al Gore candidacy? Yeah, you know, I it, it, this wasn't in the podcast, but like the burning memory for me of Al Gore in that election was, it was actually before the New Hampshire primary, he debated Bill Bradley mm. when Bill Bradley was challenging him. Former uh, basketball player Bill Bradley. Right. And, uh, you know, after the debate, they're doing an interview afterwards and they, they asked Bill Bradley some question. He's like, uh, you know... It's been a long night. I just want to go back to my hotel room, have a beer. I'll think about it tomorrow. And then Gore comes up and they say, and the same moderator is like, well, Bill Bradley said that he was going to have a beer tonight. What's going to be your beverage of choice? And you can just see the wheels are turning in his head. (laughs) And and like his answer ends up being essentially, well, you know, I've been known to drink beer and I, I really like beer, but... Um, you know, tonight I think I'm just going to go back and have a glass of milk. Mm, that's <laughs> right. I'm like, oh God, you stupid <laughs> asshole! It's like, what, what are you thinking? Like, who? <sighs> so that that to me is like Al Gore's like 2000 run in a nutshell. Mm. It's like he just wants it so badly, and he's so worried about making any kind of misstep. Yeah, that he just totally undermines himself. Um, so it, you know. I remembered the Elian Gonzalez thing very, very clearly. And right away, I handed Elian 
over to this woman, and they all, I heard this word, I heard, and it's clear as I'm talking to you right now, I heard bingo, and they ran out. Bingo, bingo, bingo. They got the boy, they got the boy. They took the boy, they're, they're getting the boy. The homestead thing I thought was actually more interesting, mm. uh, and I did not remember it. But again, it's it's Gore getting in his own way. You know, yeah. there's it's it's an easy win. In, you know, he just didn't take it. Well, I would disagree with Rebecca on the idea that the thesis of episode one is Al Gore is a shitty candidate. I think it is the thesis I think, of episode one. No, I, the thesis <laughs> is what happened before the election. Okay. And what were the contributing factors to why perhaps everyone got the number of votes that they did? Yeah. Now, I like getting into the weeds too, but I, I don't think I needed a full hour of uh, Elian Gonzalez and Ralph Nader and whatnot. I think it picks up very well with episode two. Sort of the problem with episode one is that it's all fallacious thinking. It's the hypothesis contrary to fact. You don't know that the Cubans didn't deliver because you just don't, right? You can say, well, they would have voted for this or enough to, you know, it just ends up being not, I don't want to, by saying not factual, I don't mean it's false. I mean that it's not something you can quantify. I think it's interesting, but I didn't want 56 minutes of that. But you can quantify the number of votes Ralph Nader got. You can, Because yeah, absolutely. Al Gore opened the door for him to get those votes. Like, Ralph Nader, I remember very clearly did not walk into that election with any kind of hope other than to get 5%. That was the hope. But again, the philosopher will say you cannot prove that if Ralph Nader didn't run that uh, that he would have gotten all of those same votes. I understand. That nobody would have voted for somebody else. No, I understand. So he would have gotten most of them. Most of, but you don't know what number. Well, See, he, would, he, would he have gotten more than 537 of them? Perhaps, but you don't. <laughs> that's the thing is you don't. No, that's how you get sucked into arguing. That's I how people get sucked into arguments I understand. like this. You but know? I, think, I think the thesis You don't know who would have stayed episode, home. You, yeah. I would like to ask Leon this question. Leon, hit me up. You have my DMs. Is the thesis of the first episode that if Al Gore had been a less shitty candidate, that he potentially would not have had this problem to begin with. Leon, How about if George my... W. Bush was a better candidate, he, it would have been a, he would have been the clear winner. Okay, well, I guess that's true as well. They All didn't right. go into there. Laura, <laughs> mm-hmm. let's talk yes. about that Air Force base angle, because I think that is a forgotten story. I certainly didn't remember. Yeah. Did you remember yeah. that Al Gore sort of was not able to deliver on any message, either pro-jobs or pro-environment uh, around this one issue and that it, it really hurt him? No, actually, I didn't, you know, and this is when I was working in a newsroom full time and I covered that election that year. I was going out, you know, covering the New Hampshire primary and covering things. And so I thought I was pretty up to speed on a lot of what was going on. But this whole issue was just it was it was really interesting listening to the backstory of the it was wasn't it the mayor of Miami that yeah. was su- super influential and you know he didn't want to you know do something that was gonna like lose his backing but it was like listening to this I'm like wait a minute is this the same guy who did the whole movie about global warming yes and yet he is not <laughs> concerned about the Everglades no um, he was concerned he just didn't want to say it because he, he was the just, James Comey of candidates and was all about process, Laura. Yeah, that was such a cop out (laughs) answer. I'm waiting for the process to play out. I'm like, yeah, okay. But it's like poor Al Gore. Like I I hear I'm like, how many times did he run for president? I remember when I was in the third grade, and we got those like weekly reader things. Do you guys remember those? Yeah. And I remember like, that we did the mock election and I voted for Al Gore in third grade. So like, (laughs) I mean, it's just like, 
<laughs> and I, I thought what he had hell? nice hair because that was like my third grade. Like, oh, I'm going to vote for him because he has nice hair. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like, Nate Fox, and I'm going, what the actual fuck are these people talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I made a, I made a I thought, six hour podcast. And we're talking about yeah, Laura's that, third grade experience. <laughs> but no, back I to, the to John said, Paul Stevens, for Christ's sake, at his deathbed. <laughs> I got to have to read his opinion. Yeah. <laughs> he was 99. He was pretty with it for 99. I mean, my God, he was sharp. I was like, wow. And he's like, and now he's dead. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Got that in the nick yeah. of time. I'm sure Dahlia Lithwick, when she was sitting in that Supreme Court argument, was remembering her weekly reader election in her third grade class, yeah. too. I think things really pick up at, at episode two. What do you like about episode two? Well, I just, it's this, I think it's the real starting point for this That's story. That's the journalism because, episode, right? Right. But this is where the drama finally gets injected into what this story is. In the end, this is a chase story. It's the Gore people trying to catch up to the Bush number. And so that that's what makes the narrative conflict, is trying to get there. And it does pick up on episode two. It's really an interesting inside look at the statisticians and all that. And we do tend to think of polls as being, or exit polls and projections as being determinative. Oh, this, you know, we call that state and... After projecting 50 states, somebody says, okay, I guess I'm not going to be president. Right. You know, when that isn't really what happens. The way we watch numbers come in like a horse race, like, oh, he's catching up. There's this illusion that it's something that's in process, that, like, votes are coming and and there's, like, actually a dynamic. It's just the way they're counting, Hmm. right? But it still feels like, no, there's still a chance to, you know, it's it's not, it's, it's, a frozen picture that we're just getting different pieces of. You know what I'm saying? I found it really interesting. I mean, I work in a newsroom, as you know, and I am involved in a lot of data around votes and election election coverage in our state. And it is interesting to me, you know, one of the people that contributes to our election coverage is a professor at UNH. He is one of the best political science professors in the country who can do sort of predictive analytics on a local level around um, vote predictions and, and sort of and projections. And, you know, we don't do this sort of speculative projection in public radio. But he's able to say, for instance, that, you know, if so and so performed this well and hooks it, it's a bellwether for these like eight other towns. And but what I was amazed by hearing this episode was about how they were using exit polling so influential. Like there was such an influential thing in like the data were exit polls where we now know we learned this in 2016 People lie in their exit polls. People said that there's sort of what they actually did and there's what they're willing to say that they did. And I'm not saying that that was part of the story here, but that's all I kept thinking about is that like to rely on the small sample of people walking out. What if you arrive there at 4 p.m. and you're getting a bunch of shift workers who come from a factory shift versus coming at 7 p.m. and getting a bunch of people who before their commute to their city jobs like you could be talking to completely different groups of people. We don't think margin of error means anything. Right. But it does. Yes. It means it's within the margin of error. Right. It could go either way. And if it's super close, well, then it's a coin flip. Now, Laura, we did hear these guys who you know worked in this data operation that the networks were relying on to call races, you know, talking about the conflict there, you know, telling like the networks don't if it's within a certain percentage, was it half a point or whatever? Don't predict an outcome. Don't do it. Don't do it. And there's this whole idea of these high stakes that if they get it wrong, like, that's it. They lose. I I sort of loved the inside baseball journalism stuff. What about you? Yeah, I did. I mean, I felt like it did go on a little bit longer 
than I needed. But, you know, I think it might just be because I was like reliving this 2000 election, like, oh, my God. But I, I did love that behind the scenes where, you know, you're on. I mean, you know, I know, Kevin, you've covered election nights. Rebecca, you've covered elections nights. It's a really exciting night to be a journalist when mm. you are out there getting election results. And so when you hear that sort of behind the scenes of like everybody that's reporting and then there was some sort of off-camera recordings of the TV journalists talking about the numbers and everything. And it was, you know, it kind of brought me back to that being there, being right on the front lines and what goes into deciding what to report, when to report it, how to report it, all when you're working on this sort of crazy adrenaline rush of being there on an election night when everything is breaking all at once like that. Yeah, I will say the closest feeling to working in a newsroom on election day is being a little kid and waking up on Christmas morning. Like, it does feel like this is the event. Like, this is what we've been training for. Like, this is, like, the highest stakes day of the year for us. And, you know, as this podcast drops, like, that day for me is tomorrow. (laughs) Like, I'm going to be getting up at 5, working probably until, you know, 7 a.m. the following morning straight. It's It's kind of a big deal. But there's also sort of this sense of just the high stakes, Kevin, right, of not wanting to get it wrong. Like, you cannot mess that up. You can't tweet a wrong tweet. You you just have to be, like, incredibly careful. And it sounds like the networks were kind of walking on a tightrope there, right? Well, there's, yeah, the, there's also the competition element, right? Yeah. You know, and at the national level, I mean, that's that's pretty high stakes. So that was the thing that sort of drove everybody to jump. Mm. And then one jumps, the rest have to jump. So, I mean, I think they explained in episode two, like sort of that cascade of of errors. But I, you know, I say elections work very well unless they're a tie. And this yeah. was a tie. And so, you know, the wheels fall off. But uh, as my young son, who has worked in politics, has often said, I do think and I agree with him that this was a time where it really became clear that one party is just better at politics than the other party. Um, Toby, let's talk about how the Democrats decided to fight this. There were many, many issues that contributed to problems with the vote and problems with counting. And ultimately, it seems the legal team was really swayed by people who, like Al Gore, were like, let's keep it simple, let's keep it principled, let's not get down and dirty, and let's let go of the myriad issues that we could fight and just like focus on one thing that's that's principled, that's easy to understand. So they let go of the butterfly ballot, they let go of, you know, all these other irregularities, and they just decided to, to just be hyper-focused. And the politics of that, when you compare it to how the Republicans decided to fight this with the Brooks Brothers riot and they're, you know, as Leon A. Fox says in a very prescient line in the podcast, that party decided they don't care about hypocrisy. So what if they were calling for a looser approach to ballots that were likely to benefit Bush while calling for precise adherence to the law in counties that went for Gore? Unlike the Democrats, the Republicans weren't afraid of looking like hypocrites. They were afraid of losing. It's really stark, right? The way these battles were approached by the partisans on either side. Yeah, it's the, I I brought a knife to a gunfight thing. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of understand the idea in some ways, which is like all this sort of public perception of what's going on shouldn't really matter. Like this is, this is really, it's, there are processes that have to be gone through and, you know, 
appeals that have to be filed and and different things so that it the optics of it shouldn't be of paramount importance but they're wrong and and they're also wrong in the idea that you can have a clean process when you're doing things like this because the other side whatever side you know I say whatever side it was the Republicans in this case, you know, it's just going to, it's going to try and muddy it up and and to keep you from being able to go through the process. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. I was actually talking to a friend a couple of days ago and, and he points to this as being the moment when things really, really changed. Even with Obama winning twice, it, it did show that there was a different sort of understanding in how these things are won. And it's not necessarily just sort of playing by the rules as they're written. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of other, you know, sort of side things that go into it and, and and ways that you can make the process harder for the other side. And they, and they did it, you know, and they did it successfully. And, you know, looking back on it, it seems as though the Gore campaign was kind of naive I, I can't remember at the time, and you know, I don't think I'm tipping my hand that that I'm a liberal and just being frustrated that it seemed like one side was fighting really hard mm. and the other side wasn't. You mean like their law filing, which was a baby boy without balls, as that one lawyer said? As yeah, it's to a Jeremy Bash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just somewhat aloof, and you know, I, I you know. So I, I think it's a precursor to a lot of stuff that happened later. And I think there's some there's some lead in to it. I mean, I think the whole thing. So this was right after I'd left DC and I had been there, you know, working in a political magazine uh, for when sort of the Gingrich revolution, uh, which I think was sort of the first step in this thing that, that then ended up with, with this and then, you know, eventually you get where we are today. And we should say, if you want to hear more about the Gingrich Revolution, you should listen to Neon, Leon Nafok's excellent podcast, Slow Burn, about right. the Bill Clinton years and um, the scandal of over his uh, relationship with Monica Lewinsky, which really does do an excellent job of sort of unpacking our current era of hyperpartisan politics. If you really want to get the, the full history, you can go and read Rick Perlstein's like three, have you guys, has anybody read any of that? No. Nope. It's like a three volume history of conservative politics. What do you think we are? Laura's a cat detective for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Toby. No. Yeah, it's I'm super, sure my it's son super, Henry has. <laughs> it's super interesting. If he hasn't, I'm just saying, might be a good Christmas present. Mm. You know, I, f- I find like what Leon Nafuck does so well back when he was doing Slow Burn here and even something like Bunga Bunga. Is that Leon Afok didn't make Bunga Bunga? I know he didn't make Bunga Bunga. Okay, just just checking. (laughs) But podcasts like Bunga Bunga is that you know when you push a boulder downhill, you don't have to run down the hill to keep pushing it. And so while it's obvious that there are parallels with current events, that you don't have to go, hey, and look at this, and look at this, and you know that you don't have to signpost the Empire State Building. You can just see it. Mm. And so the fact that just kind of lay it out there. And you decide, and, and it's more like, we don't have to spin what's happening today. Here's what happened before. Hmm. And just leave it at that. I mean, I think that, that, kind, that kind of subtlety is more powerful than going, all right, look at that. I agree. I just can't believe you put Bunga Bunga on the list as an example of that. <laughs> well, the, yeah. But, <laughs> but I, anyway, uh, Laura, I want to talk about a character that I haven't thought about in many, many years. 
But she plays a very important role, not just in the story, but in the podcast with extensive interviews. That is our good friend sent by God to influence the outcome of this election. My friend and yours, Catherine Harris. I'm just grateful that I was, you know, if, if in a spiritual sense, because I'm Christian, you know, that maybe in all the earth I, I got chosen to, to handle that. I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I feel like I was found worthy. Laura Bricker, we do hear, you know, one of the things that I remember very clearly, and you might remember, too, is the very sort of sexist view of Katherine Harris that, mm-hmm. you know, the media and comedians took at the time. But she's in this podcast, mm-hmm. and she seems to really, really feel like she was following the law, was a good actor, was just kind of mm-hmm. doing what she was supposed to do. What did you think of her, like hearing her in the present day talk about the, this moment in time? Yeah, I thought it was interesting to see, you know, which people actually did agree to do interviews and talk about going through all this. Because quite honestly, I remember living through that time period and I can see being like, you know what, that's done. That's in the past. But, you know, you have to give her credit. She came forward. She talked about it. She was, you know, sticking to her guns. And I just remember her sort of becoming sort of like a caricature when this happened. And I remember so much being, you know, directed her at her in such a negative way. And I, I know she didn't like the name of the podcast because she felt like this wasn't a fiasco. She felt like things were being handled the way they should have been handled. I should mention, Harris gave me kind of a hard time for the name of this podcast. It wasn't a fiasco. It wasn't a constitutional crisis. It was close election. And what was fiasco-esque was the way the media handled it. It's the media's fault. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh, here we freaking go. Oh, my God. I don't know. What is she? I can't remember what she's doing now. Did I miss that part, what she's doing Congresswoman. And I know her press secretary because I used to work for her. Really? In New Hampshire, yeah. Really? Really? Yeah, Sally Dion, who was the news director at WZID. She went on, she worked for Bill Zeliff, and then she worked for... Uh, Catherine Harris when she went to Congress. Huh. Is she a congresswoman right now? Is I don't it? know. Huh. Well, she's in airports a lot. We know that. I figured she must be a lobbyist, but I'd probably <laughs> take her. <laughs> yeah. No, it was interesting to sort of hear her and sort of hear her, um, you know, sort of sort of raspy, more mature voice, but then also to remember yeah. how she was portrayed as this ditz, but really was like, I mean, she was very conservative, obviously. Well-educated. A bush yeah. liege, as the other guy said, <laughs> uh, but, you know, not stupid and, uh, you know, quite savvy, even if she did believe that it was God who sent her to um, influence the outcome <laughs> of this um, situation. Kevin Flynn, Leon Nafok got a former Supreme Court justice to give an interview for this podcast. What do you think about that? Good get, yeah, right? Good get. <laughs> Especially if he's 99 and he's no longer with us. Were you disappointed that he didn't come to our hometown where we live now? To David Souter lives interview? in our hometown. He does. David Souter lives like a mile from us. He's an odd duck. What? Yeah. Yeah, David really? Souter. Like yeah, he retired to New Hampshire where he was from and he moved from his family farmhouse. And where? Yeah, and now he moved to a place in Hopkinton, which is close enough that he can walk to the Hopkinton Village store where he gets his yeast to bake his own bread. That's right. And picks up the New York Times. <laughs> and I ran what? into him I ran into him once there and he was having a conversation with the owner and it was lovely and there was something about a recipe and she wanted to get him something and he said honestly I said, Oh well just call the court and ask for me. Yeah. Like this is really <laughs> this was before he retired. You really think that works. Yeah, this is before he retired, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, can you no, he had re- 
retired. Oh, so wait a minute, I don't know. No, it's before he retired. Yeah, I remember. This is like such a sideline, but Nina Totenberg, the NPR reporter who covers the Supreme Court, came to my station where I work to like do an event or something, and she is, uh, as we now know from all the press post uh, RBG's death, she's friends with all of the justices, and she went to Souter's house to visit him before she came and had lunch with all of us at the station, and she said what everyone I know who's been inside David Souter's house said, which was that he doesn't turn on the lights. Like he sits in the dark and yeah. he moves his chair moves with his the chair. sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. she was just like, it's still true. I went to the bathroom to like try to fix my makeup before coming here and there was no light bulb in the light fixture. <laughs> Thanks for deciding the fate of our nation, Justice Souter. <laughs> so interesting. Do you think he has a good sourdough starter? Uh, he, he probably, probably does. does. He probably has a name. <laughs> yeah. It probably came from his great-grandmother. I bet he doesn't call it by the wrong name like that lawyer did, calling him by the wrong name. <laughs> he called, the name The name of his starter is Breyer. Well, but Laura, we did get this very personal Supreme Court story uh, yes. with Sandra Day O'Connor, which I yes. found really interesting. What did you think of that narrative near the end of the podcast? Yeah, I honestly, I think that was one of the most poignant parts of this whole podcast for me, um, having had people close to me that have suffered from Alzheimer's and been a caregiver myself, listening to the lead-in with her husband having been diagnosed with dementia, knowing that there was like a certain window of time before it was really going to progress, and her struggle, you know, personally deciding, you know, she wanted to retire, she couldn't retire. I think the same sort of thing that we've heard recently with Ruth Bader Ginsburg not wanting to retire until after the election and unfortunately passing away. But then the part that just, oh my God, just broke my heart was after the decision, she knew that she couldn't retire and the husband coming to court and like reading in her office. Yeah. And then just like wandering off and the court clerk security people would bring him back. I just thought, oh God, this is, I think that really... Just that scene to me was so poignant in terms of describing the magnitude of like the responsibility that you feel when you're a Supreme Court justice, that your family is really as much as you want them to come first or whatever. In this case, you've got this duty that you have to fulfill. And that to me was just really heartbreaking listening to that scene. When she got diagnosed, when she finally retired and then she gets diagnosed with dementia, I'm like, oh my gosh, are you even like... Really? Oh. And we should say she was also portrayed uh, in a very sexist way as not being bright. Just like we heard with Katherine Harris, it's sort of like a bookend there of like yet another very prominent, very successful woman being portrayed in the the media and by the public as just not being that bright. I found it interesting that O'Connor thought that the way that she was voting was to get the court out of politics. Yeah. And it's like, you know, to kind of wash their hands with it, because I think that some at least Stephen says he was aware of sort of the political stain this was going to leave on the court. She thought she was handling that by voting the way that they did and sort of trying to get rid of it. Justice O'Connor in particular was worried that if the case went back to the Florida Supreme Court now, the dispute over electors could enter truly uncharted territory. Justice O'Connor said, this is a mess. we got to stop it now because if we don't stop it now, it's going to go on and on and it's going to get worse and... Bush is going to win in the end anyways. I think there could have been a face-saving measure if they were able to muster that 7-2 to decision. The thing would have been the same, but if it didn't look so partisan, if it wasn't such a party-line vote, 
it probably would have saved its reputation. I don't know. Yeah. But now we have the legacy is that we have people that believe that, A, the Supreme Court literally did pick the winner as opposed to ruled on the mechanics which result, which obviously resulted in who was going to win. Right. But people believe that's what they're going to do and they could do it again. Well, it was interesting, too, underscoring Leon Nay Fox's earlier point, the conservatives on the court don't care about hypocrisy. Just well, like, he said, the, he said the operatives didn't care about hypocrisy. Right, but they knew using the equal protection clause was not a, an argument they use ever. They right. didn't care about looking like hip- like that. To me, is such a. I mean, ta- Nino said it was bullshit. Later, huge takeaway from this whole yeah. podcast is that one party, whatever side you are on, this is why you know I think it's it's an interesting point to examine. This is why, like, in the political world, in in terms of swaying the public towards certain messaging, that lack of caring about hypocrisy does seem to be the secret sauce. And in the Supreme Court, I can't remember exactly how they put it, but they basically said, our ruling shouldn't be used as precedent. It's just this one-time thing. Unlike every other ruling they ever have, and Leon Nafok points that out, it's always about precedent, except this one time. Right. So, I mean, it's just the idea that we don't want it to look political, but we're just going to make this decision, but we don't want anybody to use our decision to make another decision at some time <laughs> in the future. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, regardless of what your what your thought process was, it, it couldn't look more political. Toby, is that why it matters that even though, as the podcast points out in the final episode, you know, there have been all of this modeling that's been done by journalism outlets and other you know, organizations who've actually gone back and recounted the votes and done all these exercises using the most conservative measure to recount and then using the most liberal measure to recount. Basically, it either ends up that Gore wins by like six votes or in most of the scenarios, Bush ends up winning anyway. I mean, we can say the butterfly ballot probably had a big hand in that because there were a lot of votes. The the intent of the Florida voters, pretty much across the board, people agree the intent of the Florida voters would have made Gore win. But in elections, there are mistakes. There were mistakes made, especially with that ballot. Ultimately, Bush would have won anyway. So is the reason why this is important because of what the court did and the sort of that stain? Well, it's not the only reason, but but yeah, I the, the whole like trying to find out who would have won is it's just kind of like well what if what if michael jordan got another chance to make that shot it's like <laughs> well you know it doesn't matter like the the decision the most consequential decision that can be made basically probably in the world like you're 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 making a decision about who becomes the most powerful person in the world right and in this case it came down to nine people figuring it out and it just so happened that it went straight on party lines, and then they said, this is a one-off. Hmm. So whether he would have won or not seems almost immaterial. Yeah. Like, you know, again, it's, it's like it's like a basically a tie, like Kevin was saying before. So I think that the question, at least for me, what seems important at the end of all this is what role does the court or can or should the court play in an election that's this tight. Right. In a situation like this, like how do you keep it from being partisan? So Kevin, talk about that backseat thing. I mean, just to wrap it up, like, you know, looking at who would have won, you're right. It doesn't matter. And it's just as absurd as Ralph Nader saying, if Gal Gore had been anti this Air yeah. Force base and a million people in Iraq wouldn't have died. A, a right? butterfly effect kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the point is moot. 
Yeah. The point is moot. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Fiasco Bush v. Gore, a podcast that was heretofore behind the luminary paywall and is now available for everyone to listen to for free on Apple Podcasts and all the apps. Should we tell our listeners that it's worth a listen? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Um, well, I can't re- I can't give this a thumbs down because this is super well done, super well researched. There is so much information in here. But honestly, I lived through the 2000 election and I had a little bit of PTSD. I was like, I can't live through this again. I was like, no. I remember being in the newsroom and like turning on the news and being like, this is still going on because mm. it seemed like it went on forever when this happened. Like, I know you guys lived through this and I just was like, Oh my God, here we are, the hanging chads again. So I would say, think about who you are. If you're a history buff, this is a great podcast for you. If you're worried about the upcoming election, maybe don't listen to this. Um, I mean, don't listen to it today before tomorrow happens because this podcast comes out on Monday. If you're like in high school or college and you're taking a class about this particular time in history, this is a great way to learn about it. So Super well done. I just, I can't go back to Y2K. Yeah. Laura, where were you on election night 2000? Honestly, I think I was covering the election. I yeah, think I was who, in yeah, the newsroom. Oh, you were in the newsroom? Oh. I don't even remember. I was in the newsroom. I think I might have had like some shitty job, like getting like local race numbers oh, or something, yeah. like calling town clerks and stuff for like local yeah. numbers. Were you um, in the newsroom, you know? Kevin? No, I was at, uh, I bounced around, but I remember being at the uh, center of New Hampshire. Yeah. With the uh, on the press riser, and I think that was Gene Shaheen's headquarters. And hi, Kevin. Uh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember Scott Spradling like looking at some late results. It was after Florida got called, and he said, "It looks like Gore could win this." I yeah. remember thought he was going to lose. So yeah. yeah. Um, All right, Toby Ball. What about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Fiasco Bush v. Gore? My question for you is: like when you were driving to the hospital to get surgery, what did, what did you listen to? What do you mean? What did you listen to? Like on the radio or whatever while you were driving there. Because I, it probably wasn't Doctor Death. Um, because, <laughs> okay, I see the point. Point hey, made. One, <laughs> yeah, it's anxiety-inducing, is it not? Yeah. I, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's a great podcast. It, it, it's like basically tailored for somebody like me, and I think he does a great job. I really like certain things he does that kind of distinguish the podcast. I like how there's like a really long lead-in. So he just kind of jumps to the story and then you're kind of caught up in it. And then suddenly it's like, uh, you know, this is fiasco. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I got so like wound up in the story. I didn't realize you hadn't even introduced it. And I, I kind of like the way he he always has a kind of interesting way of leading into the story. So I, I give it a big thumbs up. I just, again, I would wait a couple weeks mm. and uh, and then listen to it because I don't think I enjoyed it quite as much as I might have in other circumstances, right. because it just, it sort of brought back this muscle memory of, of sort of nausea and anxiety hmm. beyond what I'm already feeling. Kevin Flynn, what about you? Well, uh, without relitigating who won, uh, it tells a really good story. Leon A. Falk does what he does best here. He finds peripheral uh, characters and other witnesses to history to give insight on this story. And I always like to say for a podcast, if you can't tell me something new, tell me something I don't know. And, you know, with 20 years having gone by, there's enough of the details that you forget that they feel fresh when you hear them. But when you hear them from, you know, 
like uh, Network Pollster and somebody. Jeremy Bash. Jeremy Bash. And uh, that woman in Florida who uh, didn't design the butterfly ballots, but she <laughs> oh, <would laughs> she never get, spoke to the woman again. Would you get the nasty phone calls at home? Get to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think it, I think it's good. This is, you know, and I, I'm, I don't remember when the season originally aired from Luminary behind the paywall. It was about a year ago, year and a half ago. But I think the emotional impact and the urgency of it is different today yeah. than it was when it originally came out. So it was a smart move to to re-release this, and maybe people will want to get more of Leon behind the paywall. I'm hoping, you know, if you got five bucks, so you'll give it to us on Patreon. But, you know, <laughs> whatever. You can call that a recount, too. I'm a thumbs up. Yeah, I love Leon Nafok. I actually would listen to just about anything he made. Um, it is difficult. We should acknowledge. I mean, Luminary is, um, you know, it's it's not like doing something on Netflix, right, that, like, most people get, right? Or HBO, yeah. Yeah, and that's sort of, a, you know, kind of an issue with a brand new podcast model because you want to talk about and recommend things that like a lot of people can listen to. I am thrilled that Fiasco is finally out from behind the paywall. I'm thrilled. And, you know, in in a perfect world, podcasts like this, there'd be a way to monetize it and also a way for people to get it. You know what I mean? You know, I think about like the the cheap version of Hulu versus the premium version of Hulu. You know what I mean? But don't I, apologize for Luminary. No, they don't cry all the way to the bank. Oh, trust me, I'm not. I would a hundred percent put this podcast behind a paywall if they wrote it's a check, but I am thrilled that this podcast is out in the world for people to listen to. Finally, I listened to it when it first came out. Uh, Leon and, and the team there sent us some preview episodes, and I experienced it very differently. Just like Toby said, the first time I listened to it, I'm like, oh, this is just like it reminds me a lot of Slow Burn, it has a lot of that DNA in it. Not just the history, but the storytelling, the writing is so strong, it's just so strong. The sourcing is incredible, um, but yeah, it was incredibly anxiety-inducing for me to listen to this week. But that's a sign of a good storyteller, and it's a sign of a great podcast. So big thumbs up for me for Fiasco, Bush v. Gore. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. All right, Kevin, it's time for the business section. <laughs> Playing that business music. You timed that perfectly the last week. You want to do it again? Try it again? Oh, it's, it's music's already oh, playing. Right, it's, it's already playing. Yeah. Uh, so, Kevin, we've got some business to discuss today on the Patreon Crime Writers on After Show. We are going to be talking about that blockbuster sentence. We're going to talk shit about Leon Nafok. No, we're not. So then he can't hear us. No, we're not. <laughs> Behind the paywall. Yeah. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the origins of Luminary. 
the stories you didn't know that you knew. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're going to be talking about the blockbuster sentencing of Keith Raniere from Nexium. Of course, we just finished watching 72 hours of The Vow. Yeah. And now there's been a legal sentence. 120 years. We're going to be talking about our reactions to that. We're also going to be talking about... You could say that's about a true crime update. That's right. We're also going to be talking about a legal issue a little bit closer to home and in other states around the country. The secret lists of cops that your state may not want you to know about. In New Hampshire, it's called the Lori List. And just a personal plug, I will say that the Lori List is the subject of an excellent new three-part podcast from my day job, NHPR, and Jason Moon, the host of Bear Brook. Look it up. Subscribe to it. It's called Document Season 1, The List from NHPR. We're going to be talking a little bit about those police issues in the after show today. And, of course, we'll get more personal updates from the panel. All of that is on Patreon, as well as Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. And, Kevin, uh, before we wrap up the business section, I have to ask, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Rebecca Epstein and Ann Peterson. Repstein? Bless you. Repstein is one of our patrons. Yes, Repstein. We have met her. Yes. Yeah. She's a New Hampshire girl. She's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Congratulations. She's our patron saint. Yes, and who's the other one? Ann Peterson. Have we met her? We haven't met Ann, but we would love to. Ann, get out of quarantine. Let's go have coffee. Bless Bless. you. (laughs) And thus wraps up the business section of this podcast. We fade that business music out now, Kevin. There it is. Oh, it's nice and quiet now. <laughs> Moving on. Come with me. What? To Mandalay. What? As your secretary. As my wife. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. A lady's companion falls in love with rich widower Max de Winter. The new bride is whisked to his country estate, but the specter of her husband's late wife covers all. Uh, should Mr. de Winter ask for his old wardrobe, I'm afraid you must tell him it, it wouldn't fit here. The, the rooms on this side of the house are much smaller. But this wasn't his bedroom before? Oh, no, no, no. No, Mrs. de Winter's rooms were in the West Wing. The new, unnamed Mrs. De Winter finds herself in a battle with the memory of the old Mrs. De Winter, named Rebecca. She seeks to learn more about Rebecca's mysterious death while fighting with a houseful of servants conniving to undermine the new marriage. We're not worthy of him. We're not worthy of this house. He'll never love you. <laughs> and why should he? He did. No, he can't love you because you're not her. Netflix is out with a remake of the Alfred Hitchcock classic film Rebecca, based on Daphne du Maurier's book, and which, by the way, I was named after. Rebecca, the movie, not the book. Oh, I think you were say Daphne. <laughs> this version is starring Lily James, Army Hammer, and Kristen Scott Thomas attempts to blend romance, murder mystery, and psychological thrills. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Rebecca, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Panel, I have a question for you. I'm going to start with Toby, okay? Here we have a classic Alfred Hitchcock film based on a beloved novel. The classic film, of course, starred the legendary Sir Lawrence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. And our remake 
We have a Winklevoss twin, Cinderella, Aunt Lydia, and Lady from the English Patient. Toby Ball, why was this thing made? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I honestly, I was thinking about it and, you know, why this movie? I, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me, quite yeah. honestly. Maybe somebody <laughs> has a theory. Now, uh, Toby, have you seen any Hitchcock films? Have you seen the original Rebecca or other Alfred Hitchcock films? Uh, I haven't seen the original Rebecca. I've seen a bunch of Hitchcock films like Vertigo and, you know, Rear Window, stuff like that. I mean, I, I don't know if this is where you're going with this, but... You know, you watch them and they're they're definitely products of their time, right? And there's they seem fairly dated, especially with the way that uh, I'm thinking of Vertigo in particular, the way uh, sort of the relationship between the sexes yeah. uh, is carried out seems really, really kind of laughable. I, I actually remember being I'm in a theater. I'm asking you to marry me, you silly fool. <laughs> watching Vertigo. And there's a scene where uh, Jimmy Stewart is talking to Kim Novak and he's trying to talk her into wearing a wig. Like, I think she's blonde. He wants to get her to wear a dark wig so that he'll she'll look more like his ex-wife or girlfriend or whatever. And she's like so, somewhat resistant. He's like, why? Why won't you do it? it? It can't mean anything to you. And it means everything to me. And people were just cracking up laughing. Yeah. Because it was just so... It was just so bizarre. And I kind of felt like there was a certain aspect of that datedness that was in this modern version of Rebecca, but not in a way that was at all campy. Right. It was just sort of not considered when they were remaking it. Right. I will say a couple things. I think I'm the only one in the panel who has seen the original Rebecca many, many times. It is very much a film of its time. The, you know, silly little fool, the, you know, quasi, dare we say, abusive, emotionally abusive husband who then ends up still being the love interest. We're supposed to really buy that. I was expecting while watching this, even after seeing all the hate tweets about it, that they would have done something different with the story to just make it sort of resonate a little more. But Kevin, this was an almost, with a few exceptions, almost, especially the first half of the movie, scene by scene, basically, recreation of a movie that already exists that is a beloved movie by classic film buffs. Why the hell would somebody do this, Kevin? Okay, well, it's always a great question when someone does a remake, whether it's a movie or a song. There's a balance between duplicating it, which is, you know, Bad. why why yeah. would you even do it then? Or going so far afield from the original art that it bears no resemblance. Now, I do believe, I, ha- I haven't read the book, nor have I seen the Hitchcock film, but I did do a little research because of that. And Netflix's Rebecca f- tacks more closely to the book yeah. than to the film in one big way, which was the death of Rebecca mm-hmm. in the movie because this is apparently because of the censorship codes at the time if a husband killed his wife the husband had to be punished in the storyline so instead of it oh god forbid yeah so instead of it being a shot being you know instead of Rebecca being shot then it was in the film the Hitchcock film it was like she, she fell and hit yeah. her head yeah. and right and so at least with the film then for me, with the Hitchcock film, the last third would make sense because the last third of this does not make sense. I, I appreciated the first two thirds trying to figure out what's going on, who's playing who, what's the big deal about Rebecca, how did she die? When it comes down to that, that now, oh, he murdered her, let's find a way to cover it up because, because he doesn't deserve to go to deserves, jail. Yeah. That was a little bit of a hard turn. Yeah. 
you know, and I'm like, oh, so we're happy he got away with it? <laughs> okay. I, it's funny, Laura, you watched Downton Abbey, right? Yes. So you know that the while we were watching Downton Abbey when it was on, like the Mr. Bates ostensible murdering his ex-wife storyline was totally a ripoff of Rebecca. Totally a ripoff of, you know, a guy who was Except married Mr. to Bates a... Mr. Bates didn't actually kill Right, but a guy who was married to a woman that everyone thought was great but was actually cruel and promiscuous and awful and everyone hated her and yada yada and it turns out he was all innocent. See, it wasn't enough for her to take my pride. She wanted to take my name, my home, everything. And she said, go on, Max. Do it. All you have to do is pull the trigger and you'll be free. What do you think about sort of the level of, of suspense here? Because the original film, I know you haven't seen it either. I feel like I'm talking, I'm like translating another language to all you guys. The original film is black and white and it has that sort of camp of watching a classic movie, but it is very suspenseful. Did you yeah. think this remake was suspenseful in any way? No, not at all. So that was the problem with this. I felt like, because I like everybody, like what Kevin said, I looked up, I read some information, some background before I started watching because I was like, boy, I feel like I should have a little information going in. And I'm thinking I'm going to get suspense. I'm going to get a ghost story. And I'm like, I don't really feel like I got either because it just felt like there would be moments where things would start to sort of ratchet up a little bit. And then it would get resolved or something would happen before you really started to feel that feeling of like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen? And there's one moment that actually had a great potential. Like, I felt like this could be the most suspenseful moment of the whole show when she sneaks into the doctor's office and she's going to get the records and she's hiding. And then she's like behind the curtain. They're like, oh, now we're all sitting around the table. And I'm like, yeah, really? Really? Like nothing else happened now? I'm like, could we like have at least had her hiding for a little while longer? She had cancer. That doesn't prove she killed herself. She wouldn't have wanted to suffer. Yes, yes, she told me as much. She was very advanced by the time she was symptomatic. And the ghost story, I don't know if in the original, like the ghost angle was played up a little bit more, but I felt like if that was something that could have been used as sort of a suggestion that there was this, I don't want to say spirit or whatever, but sort of this this ghost of the ex-wife more so than the suggestion of the ex-wife lurking around, just something to give it a little bit more of a pizzazz, yeah. you know? Like they had great outfits, they had great scenery, and, and that was it. Max to Winter didn't, he only had that stupid fucking yellow suit. I know, where was his hat <laughs> and his monkey? <laughs> It was curious. Excellent point. Excellent point. (laughs) It was really funny because another element that was changed uh, noticeably, and I'm sure this was because it's, it's so funny to me the choices they made to make things less offensive you know, to the modern viewer, but then the things they left in that made it more offensive to the modern <laughs> viewer. One of the things they took out that would have made it offensive to the contemporary viewer was the... Um, uh, shall we call him addled like guy that she finds in the cottage the sea the sea oh. shanty that where rebecca's boathouse that's her dog she don't come here no more she she gone into the sea and she 
in the film, the he's, full-grown leprechaun. He's much more of a presence, and he's like you know described as in whatever language they use as slow or whatever. But he's the tell. He ends up like spilling a bunch of stuff that makes you know um, sort of adds mystery to it, and and like and he has like knowledge that like seems maybe supernatural, or he's creeped out, or he's afraid, and and he adds to the suspense of the ghost stuff because he's very afraid. It turns out he's very afraid because Rebecca was abusive. To him and used to abuse him and like but I know that they didn't want to like play up this like intellectually challenged character like for caricature but then instead they chose to leave in all of the scenes where Max DeWinter was a total dick to his wife and we're supposed to feel like okay about her begging him to take her back I found that super weird Toby what and then you would believe him that no it was an accident (laughs) Toby what did you think of the suspense level of this remake of Rebecca there was nothing about this that was good, I guess is <laughs> what, what I should say. Yeah. Is, I, I just think it's, without having seen the other movie or, or read the book, it just didn't make any sense to me. There's mm. just so much weird stuff that happens. Like there's that sort of near miss car thing at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even, like it just happens so fast and then it's over and... I was like, did they have that in the other movie? And maybe it was more effective or something. So they felt like they had to do it. Um, we were just talking about that guy who hangs out in that shack. Like, do, does he do anything in the plot? I mean, <laughs> nope. I can't I can't remember anything that he did. I was like, why is this guy here? Why are we spending time with on him? There's just all these weird, you know, and Kevin brings this up about, about the whole Chekhov thing where if you have a gun in in act one, you got to use it in act three or whatever. And there's this weird stuff. Like there's these secretive business discussions that Mr. DeWinner is having that, that he kind of like sort of shuffles off to the side so that the missus doesn't hear. Yeah. There's this whole thing about how she doesn't know how to rise, ride a horse and uh, what that, that creepy cousin like gets on the horse. I'm like, okay, so clearly there's going to be something with a horse. And it's gonna Laura's be- upset about the horse. <laughs> no, I was just, yeah, that was too much weight for the horse. But what? With, with that, <laughs> I was... Yeah, well, you know. And then when it comes to the suspense, like I guess some of the parts that were supposed to be suspenseful just didn't register with me, but there's no buildup to any of this stuff. And the amount of time when you think that Rebecca might have been pregnant is is like so fleeting. Mm. And like I don't I'd forgotten what the whole thing was. It was that it was that the winner had killed her. Because she had asked him to. Like, I'd totally forgotten about that when it well, was over. It's because they mumbled it, Toby. I had to watch it like three times to hear what he said. I'm like, why is he making her hold the gun? I'm like, what's going on? And I, I like, it was like, and I'm like, it, it just wasn't, it was not enunciated well, Toby. So you're not alone. If, if I'd had, a, if I seriously, if I'd had a short answer quiz on that movie and they said how did rebecca die Mm. i would have said oh she drowned on purpose in Mm. her boat yeah like that that's what i came away thinking i'm so glad toby this validates how i feel thank you (laughs) so the the whole thing it was just weird it was like why did they didn't anybody think through any of these things no um (laughs) so so it just i at the end i i got my wife and daughter to watch with me i think it's like oh i think you guys might might like this as opposed to all the other stuff i watch for this show and <laughs> when it was over my daughter's like what was that <laughs> sorry well i will say i want to defend the original film i think alfred hitchcock is very 
problematic, as we know, as a human being. And a lot of the stuff in his films about the relationship between the sexes is actually him playing out his fucked up relationship with women, like on screen with these actors and these characters. And we know in real life he was very abusive uh, and controlling and had this like... As Tippi Hendren, yeah. He was basically like the Harvey Weinstein of of his time um, in many ways. But... I will defend the original Rebecca in one detail is that Mrs. Danvers in the original film was like the nurse ratchet of that era. She was such a creepy, scary character. And Kevin, here we have Kristen Scott Thomas and Army Hammer, who's like always supposed to be like. He's the star of the future and always will be. (laughs) (laughs) And then Kristen, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. Does anyone else think she looks like Cloris Leachman from Young Frankenstein? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. She does, yeah. You didn't even recognize Aunt Lydia, your real-life aunt, Ann Dowd, in this film. No, she had hair, a wig, or whatever. <laughs> all right, I think we've probably wrung all of the juice out of this orange. Let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the remake of Rebecca on Netflix, a remake of a classic Alfred Hitchcock film. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Rebecca? Well, sorry, but this is a thumbs down. Unless you're ready to go to sleep and you need something on in the background that is not going to be suspenseful (laughs) and keep you up at night. (laughs) And then you might have it on in the background. Like sometimes you have like law and order going during the day or whatever. Anyway, so no, this is the thumbs down. It was just, I was so sad because, you know, you have like these like nice, attractive actors and actresses in this movie. You have like scenery that's interesting and it was just kind of like flat. So um, unfortunately, no. Toby Ball, thumbs up or thumbs down for Rebecca. You know, literally the most interesting thing about this movie is trying to envision what people were thinking when they made it. And like trying to figure out what the pitch was that got the money from producers to get it done. And <laughs> Army Hammer. The whole thing is just so badly thought out. It's baffling. So a thumbs up, of course. Um, <laughs> no, this is, it's, you know, it's a thumbs down. It's, it's, it's really, it's really bad. I, it's. <laughs> Really, and then I think it's like number one on Netflix. Yeah, it's, I just I don't. That's why we did it, Toby. <laughs> you think you think I would have put you through this if it wasn't popular? <laughs> it's like a head scratcher. The only thing that could have been worse if it was like a six part like series that we had to sit through, but it was awful. Kevin Flynn. Well, what can I, Kevin Flynn, say about Rebecca? Yeah, that I haven't said about Rebecca before. <laughs> I like Rebecca, uh-huh. but I'm not sure I love Rebecca. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Rebecca has anything meaningful to say. Yeah, uh, Many people are ashamed that they like Rebecca. Uh-huh. You're not going to hear a lot of people saying, I find Rebecca stimulating. <laughs> I think you would be stimulated by Rebecca. Huh. I found it hard to get into Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if people say Kevin Flynn... Do you think Rebecca is something special? I would say, no, Rebecca is pretty basic. Yeah. So Some a thumbs down. Thumbs down. Yeah, the only thing I liked about this fucking movie was its name, I'll be real with you. Um, <laughs> it's real bad. You know a movie is bad when they have all the opportunities in the world for location porn. Like, you think about the Monte Carlo stuff, the English cliff sides, Egypt, and you just don't give a shit about any of it. The gorgeous house didn't give a shit. Really, like a strong potential cast 
in this film, except for Army Hammer, who is the star of the future and always will be. I mean, Kristen Scott Thomas is a goddamn Oscar winner, is she not? Uh, yeah, we have, she is. Yeah, Ann Dowd. We have uh, Lily James. We have all these great actors in this horrible, horrible production. Even the costume sucked. Like, everything about it sucked. Huge thumbs down for me from Rebecca. I'm glad I watched it so I can say I did. But there's nothing to like about this film. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super secret hiding spots so i can kill time in here by streaming my favorite ha found you how you left to find my tablet on get wall-to-wall wi-fi on the xfinity 10g network restrictions apply not available in all areas actual speeds vary walmart plus members save on meeting up with friends Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for Leonard's shoulders. The Bronx man was waiting for a bus when the sidewalk he was standing on gave way and fell at least 12 feet. He was stuck and landed in a basement below the concrete that was filled with, wait for it, Dozens of rats. The rodents then swarmed over the intruder. Shoulder said he wanted to scream, but was afraid a rat would crawl into his mouth. Ah! The man broke an arm and a leg and was said to be deeply traumatized by the incident. I can't understand why. It took firefighters a half hour to pull him out and get him to the hospital. City inspectors ordered everyone out of the building in front of the sinkhole and ordered the landlord to repair the sidewalk in the basement beneath it, all of which had fallen into disrepair. So, panel, here's my question for you. Falling into a sinkhole filled with rats is pretty upsetting. But what would have made it even worse? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Oh, God, so many things. In my personal life, uh, snakes would have made it worse. Mm. Um, Sewage leak in the basement, rats, sewage, snakes. I mean, there's so many things. I'm falling in. It's just bad on many fronts. Toby Ball falling into a sinkhole filled with rats. Pretty upsetting. What would have made it even worse? So first of all, is this guy like, is this like his mafia nickname, Leonard Shoulders? (laughs) No, it's not. Lenny Um, Shoulders? Yeah. It would have been much worse if he had been made out of cheese. Oh, yeah. Kevin, what do you think? Uh, If he had fallen into that sinkhole, got stuck, and was forced to watch Rebecca. (laughs) Or all nine hours of The Vow. (laughs) Listen, only episodes five through eight were on, well, four through eight were on. I would watch. All, all the vow three times before exactly. I watch Rebecca again. 100% agree with you. All right. We should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a mystery animal of the week this week, Rebecca. Wow. That oh. doesn't sound like anything that I want to hear about. What is it, well, Laura? It comes to us from our good friend and listener, Lisa Strawn, who is um, one of my most active Brichter Scaler members and who we met 
Um, back in the days when we could travel out to Chicago, Chicago, baby, yeah, hey, Lisa. Lisa has a animal mystery going on in her house right now. She really? Sat, yes, she sat down in her home office this morning and heard a cat meow. She had really? headphones in, listening to Crime Writers on. Actually, took them out to listen. Thought she heard it again. The dog heard it too, and her children have heard it. So now they hear something in the roof that sounds like something perhaps crying. So they it think they like might. Rebecca. It sounds like Rebecca. But I want to say my biggest win of this whole thing is that I'm now consulting for Lisa because nice. she has gotten a game camera and she has it set up. She put some tuna. She found a hole in the roof where something might have climbed in. She's got some tuna and the game camera on it. So next week we might fail to reveal what the mystery animal is in Lisa's house. I'm going with cat. If it sounds like a cat, it's probably a cat, right? All right. Well, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you with their animal mysteries that you can help them solve because you are almost a certified pet detective. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Tony Ball, folks want to reach out to you and convince you to maybe watch some more Alfred Hitchcock films in your spare time. How can they find you on Twitter? First of all, that that story from Lisa is like 10 times creepier than Rebecca was. Um, there's a lot more suspense, you can, Toby. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. It reminds me of Mindhunter, I think. Yeah. That they had that, that whole yeah. thing going on in the laundry room. Uh, at Toby Ball on H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and give you some more zingers to use with the movie title Rebecca, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our regular Facebook page and hit the button and join the group. Like my dad did by accident. That's right. We will let you in because we let in Kevin's dad, so we will literally let in anyone. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie, assisted by Olivia Burdett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, at the closet in our New Hampshire basement, formerly occupied by the first Mrs. Flynn, in which no one is allowed. On behalf of all the crime writers, go out and vote! vote. Thanks for listening. We will catch you later. Toby Ball, uh, Leon Nafok gets a former Supreme Court justice to give an interview for this podcast. What do you think about that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, none of us apparently care. It's more about Laura's third grade. Kevin vote. cares. That must, have happened, that must have happened in episode six. It was a go. Oh, so you were going to listen to episode six? Partners in Crime Media. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.